Welcome to the Swaplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Hannah Rassinen. And I'm James Cone. And this is going to be a quick one, guys. <laughs> I feel like I dragged you out after a few days. Uh, it was a busy weekend. There was a WrestleMania event, from what I remember. Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen more movies from the Overlook Film Festival, which we're going to talk about. But yeah. it just conflicted with WrestleMania, which is now two nights, Saturday and Sunday. It doesn't need to be either. I watched uh, most of it after the fact. I was like, they could have made this a little zippier. Ooh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I like the two night. I like having it on a Saturday. Yeah. Maybe that's me coping because I did spend the entire weekend at Overlook Film Fest. And uh, I don't want to feel like I missed out on something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Hanna actually joined me for two days at Overlook this year. I did. I took the day off on Friday so I could stay out all night on Thursday and watch some sweet movies. Hell yeah. Uh, I think I'd only seen, I'd only been to Overlook last year, and I only saw one film. So I quadrupled my viewing this time. <laughs> okay, so festivals are a little hectic. Uh, this one I really love, though. Like mm-hmm. It's all centrally located at the Britannia downtown at Canal Place. Recently, they've been adding these like bigger prestige screenings at Britannia Uptown, where like celebrities will do a little red carpet uh, step and repeat. And then like give like a Q and A after the fact. I-, I heard a lot of people were turned away from uh, Renfield because uh, oh, yeah. everyone wanted to see Nick Cage in the flesh. <laughs> but for me, I was downtown at the office building slash shopping mall that is Canal Place, <laughs> which is a very strange venue for a movie festival. But it allows you to bounce around to these different screening rooms that are several feet apart from each other, and you're with a crowd of like horror nerds and just genre freaks for four days and i keep seeing the same people over and over again chatting them up in line it it was interesting walking on the first level of the mall and you're passing by like louis vuitton armani and then you see somebody in like an evil dead shirt (laughs) yeah Yeah. okay i know where you're going yeah and even on the theater floor it's like 80 percent goth nerds and then there are a couple of people that are there to see like the regular screeners just kind of looking at everything going on <laughs> it's very pleasurable if you really wanted to give some goths like uh swirlies and uh <laughs> uh noogies this is the place that they're all centrally located oh god that'll be premiering at overlook next year that <laughs> yeah, the bully that got loose of the horror festival okay so between us we saw four movies together I believe later in this episode, I'll be joined by Bill Arsenault to discuss a wider range of Overlook titles, because Bill usually gets screeners as press. Let's start with the two that James came out for, since we all saw them together. Not not a great selection, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you missed some of the highlights. It was tough, because I was trying to pick like which ones to go see, and the two that I ended up seeing were kind of high on the list, but man, I, I don't know. I think I picked wrong. I was also... When I was... Putting together the list of movies I wanted to see. These two were also very high on my list. Okay, so I didn't fuck up and like lead y'all astray. (laughs) This is something we all independently thought might be good. No, and it was also a timing thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, try to fit it in there. But uh, I guess the first one we'll talk about is Aberrance. Aberrance was uh, highlighted as the first Mongolian horror film to ever play at Overlook. And as soon as the first frame started, it was like, oh, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I remember looking up after the movie, like, what are some other Mongolian horror films? And there's not many. And maybe there's a reason. (laughs) 
<laughs> it doesn't look like there's a Mongolian horror industry. Like it doesn't yeah. look like yeah. a well, you know, like when you like look at like a Thai horror film or like Taiwanese or like there's a whole long South history. Korea yeah. And, yeah. There's a long history of them to pull from. It feels like the Mongolian horror scene is a recent phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to tell what the good stuff is from what I was uh, doing think, some like and brief research on. I feel like it's pulling mostly from just American horror films, which this definitely was. Yeah, this was a pretty generic film about uh, this couple that moves to this like kind of isolated house outside the city to see through a pregnancy in isolation. And they have a neighbor who is kind of friendly, maybe a little nosy, and it seems kind of clear in the beginning that the husband is abusing his pregnant wife. But wait, there's he? a twist. <laughs> right. The wife is actually mentally insane and he's locking <laughs> her up for her own safety. And then there's another twist that I guess I won't reveal in case anyone wants to see aberrants. But like, woof, this is like some pretty cheap schlock. And I mean cheap both in like a financial sense and just like a, what it gets away with is yeah. like unearned. And uh, it's just following twists for their own sake and, you know, really just upsetting yeah. in the I, worst way. I really held out hope throughout this film. So I want to talk a little bit about my journey through it briefly. So in the movies we saw on Thursday, both films were presented. Someone comes out and says, hey, this is the film you're going to watch. And in both cases, the presenters were very excited about the movies that we were going to watch. And the presenter came out for Aberrants, and he was like, look, uh, I don't want to say too much (laughs) about this movie, but just, you know, keep in mind, the director had a lot of fun making this film. He was a a cinematographer for a long time, and he made all these rigs himself, and he just, he worked really hard to make this movie. And I was like, huh, okay apologizing for something that hasn't even started yet. Yeah, and then I thought, well, either the cinematography is fantastic and he really wants to highlight it, or this movie is not great, but maybe the cinematography is great. And then, like Brandon said, the first shot comes up and it's this like digital shot of this woman like running through the woods and it it has like uh, the look of HDR, like the contrast is really strange and it looks weirdly artificial and I absolutely hate that style and I was just like so unhappy (laughs) (laughs) and then and then I held up hope for the story and the story made me mad the twist in the second half is just like (sighs) taking the twist as truth makes the first half of the film make no sense basically um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was and really I, something. And I didn't like w- what it seemed to be saying about mental illness or about abuse. domestic abuse. Yeah. It was just all over the place bad. I guess my thought process throughout the movie was like, oh, well, he made a movie. I mean, right. you got to give him some credit for making a thing. But also my critical mind was coming in like, this is just bad though. (laughs) But I feel like happy for the guy that he got to make it. Yeah. It's kind of the dream, like making a movie on like a cheap budget that like gets an international film festival. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah. But I mean, you could tell from that intro that like the shots were more important than like what the shots were supposed to mean. So like there's a lot of body mounted cameras and these like whip pan, like security cam swivels and like things that I guess look cool in the abstract, but like, 
the purpose they were serving was just so empty that they actually became annoying the more flashy they got. Right. It was like very distracting and it took me out of whatever story was being told, which again, I did not like or agree with. And they had that cheap filter of like digital snow that was just trickling down over the image the whole time. You could never forget that you were watching something like really sub-professional and and under like planned and under thought out. Yeah. I I do think it's the first time in a while that we've left a movie together kind of (laughs) angry. We complained for the entire walk to the restaurant after. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't know. I like I hate to be critical because it is great that he's achieved this. And it's great that Overlook got a Mongolian horror film. Like I want them to continue diversifying films that they have but like i think i could have forgiven it if the messages that it seemed to have weren't totally like kind of damaging again i'm glad he got to do it but (laughs) good for him (laughs) bad for us right uh the next movie was a little better oh yeah uh we saw a movie called appendage that will be premiering on hulu later this year I did, after the fact, watch the short film that Hana was yeah. said it was based on, um, which also premiered on Hulu, which I did not know. Oh, I didn't I didn't know that either. Where did you see the short film? I don't remember. I don't think it was on Hulu. Strange. I thought it was on like Vimeo or something, like some other... Uh... Oh, wait. You know what? I'm totally wrong. It, I just remembered. It was part of Huluween. Okay, so <laughs> I, I did see, see, on, see Hulu. on Hulu. I saw it on Huluween. Of course. <laughs> totally different. Okay, I apologize. Uh, I was wrong. It was on Huluween. I was wondering why the short jumped out at you, and then I watched it today, and it had Rachel Sennett yeah, in it. Yeah, that was like, oh, she's great. The right. only reason that I watched it, I wanted to watch everything that Rachel Sennett had been in. It was her and uh, Eric, a talking cat, Roberts were the only two uh, really actors in the movie. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, you he just sold me on it. Uh, Christiane, the uh, <laughs> stuffy fashion yeah. designer. Very different casting from the feature. <laughs> I got to see that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that one's only five minutes. This one's uh, ninety. It's kind of a sweaty 90. Like in the short film, it follows a fashion designer who is uh, struggling to produce work as fast as her megalomaniac boss wants her to. And the stress of her job causes this growth on her side, like a work stress, physical malady. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that turns out to be a um, sentient tumor in the style of uh, how to get ahead in advertising. (laughs) That uh, grows mouth and teeth and eyes and starts talking back to her and calling her a bitch and telling her she's like (laughs) bad at her work. And then from there, it adds to what the short sketched out where it brings in all these like mommy issues with like the negative voice in her head that gives birth to this little rubber monster growing on her side is just an extension of her mother like negging her as a kid. Mm -hmm. She has this like very waspy upper class childhood that uh, really fucked her up mentally. Um, and gave birth to this little rubber monster puppet that was very fucking adorable. <laughs> I love the the puppet. And I actually thought, I don't know how you feel about this, but I thought the, the puppet in the movie was like a huge improvement yeah, over definitely. what they could achieve with the short film budget. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, every time the puppet was on screen, I was having a great time. <laughs> uh, there were some struggles maybe in between the, the puppetry. Yeah. But uh, it was mostly pretty fun. Yeah, that seemed to be the general consensus in the theater too. Like anytime the puppet came on screen and said anything everybody was howling laughing and it was fantastic yeah and like we saw this movie with my mom and stepdad (laughs) and even my mom yeah anytime that thing would come on she was howling as well so that seemed to be pretty unanimous 
but then the film kind of turns into this like doppelganger thing where it grows and it's like feeding off of her. So obviously they're trying to like expand the universe and that stuff didn't work nearly as well for me. I kind of wish it would have just stuck with the, the little growth baby. Yeah, I thought it worked very well just as a metaphor but then the movie starts to like dig into what exactly this thing is and uh that other people have the same thing and it's like a twin that you swallowed that your body absorbed yeah um in the womb and the direction that i thought it was going to go in having seen the short film was that it would continue to grow and become more and more grotesque as maybe she got like critical acclaim or acclaim from the designer for the work she was doing and then like it would become unsustainable at some point but I just didn't really care for the direction that this went in and I felt like all of the explanation wasn't really necessary and just kind of distracted me yeah it felt like not really fully thought out even though it was fully fleshed out like yeah what does the fashion world stuff really have to do with like her family drama? It feels like it should have just like kind of picked one or the other. Yeah. Either ditch the original concept or fully lean into the new one. I don't know. Yeah. It did feel like it used the short film as a entry point into a second film. Yeah. Like it just had kind of two distinct halves, one of which worked very well and one that was kind of a misfire. Right. Yeah, and then also, so it's like anxiety born from her work stress, and then she has her stress from her mom and trauma from her childhood, and then also she has this boyfriend and her friend, and she thinks that they're in love. So the like root of this growth is kind of spread out between those three things, and it's not really well-focused, in my opinion. So like I didn't really care for the the jealousy thing being a crux of her mental state at all. Like, I thought that was the least interesting part of that, like, trifecta. But the monster was very fun. Yeah, I'm a simple guy. Show me, like, a monster, <laughs> I'm going to be happy. Like, yeah. this story has been done before, not only in how to get ahead in advertising, but I feel like there's a little bit of basket case in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bad Milo was a fun one from a few years ago where a monster comes out of a guy's ass <laughs> in a similar way. And then there's also last year's hatching, which I feel like even gets yeah. into the mother stuff in a more thoughtful way Yeah, and has kind of the same narrative trajectory. What this one has, that the other ones doesn't is like the specificity of this particular monster puppet, which is a delight. <laughs> so when this hits Huluween, I'm guessing like later this year, like it's good to throw in a larger pool of like, monster movies you'll already be watching that season you know because like you're not going to care as much about the narrative being uh interesting if you're watching like eight monster movies in a day you just want to see the puppet right (laughs) and the puppet is great puppet's great a plus puppet (laughs) we did see two very good movies the opening night on thursday and those are the ones i was most excited to see i'm very glad hana was able to join me for those yay so the last movie we saw was um the five devils which was directed by leah misius uh, which stars Adele Exarchopoulos or Exarchopoulos. I really tried to figure out how to pronounce her name and I couldn't figure it out. Um, as Joanne, who is the mother of this little girl named Vicky, she's married to uh, this man that she knew as a teenager. Um, they have a little life together, but she seems to be pretty unhappy 
Her child, Vicky, is like this beautiful, weird little girl who has an extremely good sense of smell and is very lonely. She's obsessed with her mother and she like scrapes up all of this kind of like wax butter that her mother puts on when she swims in the morning and like puts the excess in a little jar and smells it. She She's like totally in love with her mother. So the woman's husband's sister comes into town and there's obviously something that's happened in the history of this town that has turned people against the sister Julia. And this little girl finds this vial of something in Julia's bag and she's able to use it somehow with other things that she finds to like go back in time. Either some people were saying through her mother's memories, but I thought it was her aunt's memories but it's not clear i think she just like comes from this like lineage of like volatile witchy women but like none of them fully understand how it works right but she like at first we think is just like mentally revisiting her mother's past but like it becomes very apparent that she's like actually there yeah she's there so as the relationship between julia and joanne develops in the present vicky is going back in the past and seeing their relationship years earlier and is also like impacting events during that time in a very interesting way. And I loved this movie. I thought it was so beautiful and heartbreaking. It has this like really beautiful queer love story that develops like, I don't know, it just develops very organically it felt very tender to me Um, it's shot beautifully and I think this little girl is a really interesting character she's kind of unlikable in some ways like she's so obsessed with her mother that she does things that are hurtful to other people but she's also extremely lonely and isolated so you understand you know why she's developed in the way that she has Um, And unlike Appendage, this movie does not really explain what's going on or how things are working. And I think that that is really beautiful. And it doesn't need the explanation. It's just kind of like magical sci-fi witchery. I was even like trying to parse out like, what does the title mean? Like, is the five devils the five senses? And like, most of it is about smell. Mm. But there are a few images that like conjure like a very distinct sense of touch like there's that scene towards the end where there's like sequins on this gymnastics uniform they're like scraping against like raw mm-hmm. burnt flesh and i was like okay well that's sense number two but like right. I have three more in the air that i'm not really sure about yeah and then i was also thinking like well what are the if the five devils are maybe the people who are trapped in this like really complex love quadrangle right. plus the child but then it's like well none of them are like actually villainous or evil they're just like in these really messy passionate relationships where they don't really understand how much they're hurting each other or they do know but they're doing it for like kind of selfish reasons that they can't really control yeah and it's just like i don't want an answer to those questions (laughs) but like that's just the kind of movie it is where you're like thinking about what each little image and idea means and there's a lot to unpack yeah and but it's not withholding in a way that's unsatisfying it's just 
ripe grounds for kind of ruminating about everything. And just when you think that like the story has been wrapped up in this really clean way and like everything's been resolved, it leaves you on an image that makes it just as like (laughs) complex and upsetting as it was in the first place. Like, oh no, this is going to continue in this pattern forever. Right. Uh, You know, it it doesn't let you feel settled or like comforted Mm -hmm. at any moment. Um, even though there is a lot of love and passion between these people. Yeah, and I feel like there was a great balance between kind of like love and pain. Like it was just a really perfectly tuned love story. Yeah. It reminded me a lot of Petite Mama, but like <laughs> yeah. in a really fucked up way. Right. And I was thinking about how when I went to see that movie, I believe at AMC, it was like in this like empty auditorium. You know, and that's at the suburban multiplex. So there's this huge, empty stadium seating thing with like maybe four people in the entire arena. And like this was opening the same day at the Broad, not very far away from where it was playing at this um, film festival at the Britannia. And I was just thinking like if I saw this at the Broad, there'd be like nobody there Mm -hmm. watching it with me. Like when we went to go see Calvair there recently. Like we were the only people in the theater. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, you know, I fucking love that film festivals get like weirdos together who are excited about this stuff it felt like an event you know yeah uh and the crowd seemed to like stick with it even though it takes weird twists and turns yeah especially for a movie that ended at like 11 20 i mean it was just a really emotional movie so to sit there with a lot of people that you know are invested until almost midnight is a very special communal experience that also paid off really well with the movie we watched beforehand, <laughs> which is uh, Quentin Depew's new film, Smoking Causes Coughing, Ugh. which uh, opened VOD the same day that it played at Overlook. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two times that I've seen his movies in theaters were both at film festivals. Uh, the three of us went to go see Deerskin at New Orleans French Film Fest in a packed theater. Yeah. Whereas that movie would play to an empty audience, I think, if it played at the Broad. Yeah. Uh, this one didn't play anywhere in town except for Overlook. And uh, it was a fucking riot. Like <laughs> his movies, I mean, as all comedies are, are just like way funnier when there's like people laughing along yeah. with them. And actually, I watched Mandibles yesterday and I had that thought as I was watching it. Like, I think that Deerskin and Smoking Causes Coughing were both just kind of funnier to me conceptually. But I did have the thought, like, if I had watched Mandibles with a crowd of people, I think that the timing would have worked much better for me. Yeah. But like in Mandibles, uh, Smoking Causes Coughing has these, like, fantastic creatures. I feel like Quentin Depew is so good at instilling the characters or inanimate objects that he uses with character and the like the timing of their movements is funny and like sometimes a little pathetic like there's this big hulking rubber turtle in this (laughs) (laughs) movie that's just kind of like flailing around and yeah I don't know it's just like more absurdity like so so fun to watch with a bunch of people yeah, it was, I mean, it was wonderful. Well, those puppets are like where his career started, right? Because yeah. he was a DJ called Mr. Oizo, and he directed his own music videos. Most famously, he had a puppet called Flat Eric, <laughs> who was just this little orange puppet that would like do business at like this like 70s looking <laughs> desk and eventually became so popular that he was like a Levi's jeans mascot. Oh, really? Yeah, it was Ugh. like 
a huge thing in the 90s to love Flat Eric. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he's turned that into a career. Like his first hit was the film Rubber, which mm-hmm. is about a telekinetic car tire that kills people. Yeah. We all love Deerskin. I want to say that's probably our collective favorite film from the date. And that's about a telepathic Deerskin jacket. Yeah. Uh, in this one, there is a rubber rat monster puppet that's like yeah. very fun and like <laughs> absolutely fucking disgusting. He just so drips gross. this like green goo every time he talks out yeah. of his mouth. But the women are like inexplicably attracted to him. Oh, yeah, he he's just such like a turn get, on. oh yeah, gets all the ladies. <laughs> Uh, this has been advertised as a Power Rangers spoof, which I guess it is. Uh, <laughs> there's a team called the Tobacco Squad who use the destructive powers of cigarette smoke to destroy the types of rubber kaiju monsters you would expect the Power Rangers to mm-hmm. fight in these like, open fields. Yeah, The movie has a lot of fun with that premise for, I want to say, about 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> and then uh, Zipu just kind of gets bored and moves on. Uh, <laughs> they start entertaining each other the teammates with uh, these like campfire horror stories. And it turns instead into this like makeshift horror anthology. Mm -hmm. So like for the first half an hour, I was like, why is this even playing at a horror movie festival? Yeah. Not that I'm complaining. I'm having a great time, but then it turns into like a horror anthology, horror comedy um, with some really funny slasher spoofs and like just for their own sake, violent gags and like bloody slapstick Mm -hmm. goopiness. And, uh, like every one of his movies, it doesn't mean a damn thing. It's like proudly <laughs> idiotic and proudly about nothing. Yeah. But uh, kind of like how Deerskin felt like a new thing for him where he was like kind of making fun of himself for making these kinds of movies. This feels like a new thing where like he feels free to not have to stick with one stupid idea for the whole time. He yeah. just like breaks it up in his little like bite size morsels that he can like dish out however he feels like from like minute to minute um, yeah and every gag having it laughing i would have to re-watch rubber to really put gusto behind this but i do feel like this is the least narrative of his film like the the movie with the least overarching kind of story like deerskin has a pretty concrete arc and so does mandibles, even though it like, you know, meanders as it's going on. But this was truly just like ambling through different stories. And the ending is it doesn't necessarily like wrap up in a super satisfying way, but it's very funny and continues to be absurd. Um, And I mean, I just found it to be very enjoyable. Yeah, you have these like superheroes that you would expect to like save the world in this very heroic Power Rangers style and instead they're just like waiting for something to happen for the last like act yeah which is hilarious and that like kind of classic Beckett style absurdism you know yeah and they've been sent on this retreat by their rat leader to work on their group cohesion (laughs) because they're like I don't know they're scoring terribly in group cohesion apparently and they just like can't stop bickering throughout the whole thing and like never really gets resolved but it's very funny yeah once upon a time hollywood knew how to show audiences a good time take one alluring femme fatale what are you gonna do charge me with smoking throw in a sexy high stakes plot suppose i were to offer you one million dollars for one night with your wife and quickly bring tensions to the boil for some reason you'll also need michael douglas lots and lots of michael douglas 
one movie at Overlook I very much wanted to highlight was a three-hour documentary about direct-to-video erotic thrillers from the 80s and 90s. Uh, we Kill for Love. And I had to rope in the one person I knew who also had access to this film, which is Bill Arsenault. Yeah. And Bill has been our uh, semi-official festival correspondent for a couple of years now. Yeah, yeah, despite only having gone to, and this is only because of, mostly because of COVID, you know, and a hesitance to kind of go back to the theater, or more specifically to go back to New Orleans theaters, as much as I love them, it's kind of more like COVID made me want to crawl into my suburban theater that that's right across the highway from me. I could literally walk to it. And... When it comes to film festivals, I'm like, should I wear a mask? What do I do now? You know, but they're offered virtually, so that kind of makes it easier to go through. And yes, I had access to this really cool documentary, three hours, and they you don't feel it really with this this movie. I, I thought I would feel it, but it held my attention the whole way through. Honestly, it went by a lot smoother than the uh, Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched documentary that's of a similar length about folk horror yeah yeah which i watched at home so maybe you know being in the theater made the erotic thriller one go by quicker you know because i couldn't look away no i mean i I saw it on my computer and uh because for some reason there's like a security feature where on this particular screener it wasn't vimeo it was uh some other uh format and i wanted to do it over airplay so i could watch it on my tv and uh it wouldn't let me it would it would just had a black screen and I was like, huh, oh, okay, I'll watch it in my office chair by my computer, which happens to be okay, but still, you know. But it held my attention, and it was really cool. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's get into it. What did, what did you think of it? Well, first of all, it's just incredibly well-timed. Like, this guy, uh, Anthony Penta, has been working on this movie for six years, uh, is what he said. Has he really? Q&A. And what? if you think about it, of course he has, because this movie covers over 300 titles of direct-to-video uh, erotic thrillers from their heyday. Uh, most of them weren't even direct-to-video. They were direct-to-like Skinamax and Playboy TV and that kind of like cable outlet. Well, towards the end, they were. Right, yeah. right, right. The, the movie does cover, you know, from the breakout success of Fatal Instinct and, uh, I'm sorry, Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct. Um, yeah. And then the many knockoffs that were called things like Fatal Instinct. <laughs> that's that's what I love about it. It's like it's at the corner of adult cinema pornography. Yeah, and but it's not pornography, you know. And it's not even really softcore. It's it's just some some erotic scenes, but you actually have a plot, you know. And right. uh, that's the more important part. And uh, so, but they still have the par- almost the parody titles. They're still taking it seriously, but they have to get your attention. Like it's sitting right next to Basic Instinct, so they got to call it Fatal Instinct, or they got to call it some other title where it's like grabs your attention. But there's also legs on the cover of the VHS box. It's like a romance novel in a grocery store. Yeah, and one of the more clever devices in the film is uh, they keep cutting back to uh, refrigerator magnets with nouns and adjectives that they keep rearranging. So like. <laughs> One movie will be called like Carnal Passions, and then Fatal Urges, 
and then you know carnal urges and then fatal passions like they really just like mix and match these different combinations of like erotic thriller buzzwords so that they become more and more generic the more they get made <laughs> yeah. and and the more it, the more the market gets saturated right that that's part of the the whole uh, escalating effect of the of the film is that the more these movies, like it's really interesting um these erotic thrillers i was not aware that the budgets for some of them were close to a million dollars you know yeah when when they started immediately after those like adrian line and um paul verhoven like breakouts they were like competing with those on the shelf at like blockbuster and major video and like other you know big outlets like uh corporate uh video store outlets they were having to stand up to that quality even though they weren't playing in theaters yeah. and then um you know gradually that became less of a priority and they just needed to turn out like schlock to pad out the basic cable schedules for, you know, Cinemax and Playboy TV. Yeah. And then it kind of devolved into hiring porno actors because they were, they could get through it much quicker. You know, right. uh, that's what they explain in there. Like they're not going to ask for certain things. They just strip and then boom, right into it. Uh, which I felt that's the only down part of the documentary that I, that the only part of the documentary that I felt was kind of, uh, uh, and they, they make an, a, a reasonable effort to not demean porno actors or porn titles in, in general. But that was the one section where I thought, okay, you know, you don't need to harp on it as much that, you know, like demean them or belittle them. I mean, they're, they're just performers too. They just happen to be performing acts, you know? Yeah. There's a section towards the end where they allow, a lot of people who made a bunch of these to say some politically shaky things. And then I think also allows people to contradict them immediately. Like there's some like right wing talking points about how like the erotic thriller dried up because no one's allowed to be seductive or be a real man anymore. And then like (laughs) immediately someone else will become a talking head and say, you know, like, well, actually that's bullshit. They're just on lifetime now and maybe have less nudity, but like we never stopped making them. Yeah, I remember that part. I was like, yeah, they are kind of on Lifetime. You know, Will Ferrell and uh, Kristen Wiig even did their own version of one. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't even a spoof. They just did one. Uh, that was kind of the, the joke, you know, uh, is that it was just straight. Um, I felt a little, I don't want to say guilt, but watching this, I was like, oh, I remember that actor. <laughs> I, could, I pointed out a bunch of the, the interviewees. I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, I uh, quote-unquote watched them a couple of times. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to say it like that, you know. Uh, it wasn't, it was more than watching, but I certainly watched them. I remember those some of those movies, of course, in my formative years uh, in uh, the school system, you know. Uh, tape trading with friends, like, hey, did you see this one? You know? But some of those titles did surprise me um growing up when it wasn't just the titillation you know of course that's you know you're growing through puberty that's that's what you're uh, you know most attracted to but i as someone who's more interested in the filmmaking quality of of productions even back then i was kind of appreciating that some of these titles took a little took some chances in both the screenplay and in uh the overall execution but i was really impressed with a lot of the acting uh in general in in some of these uh titles and i even revisited 
uh, clips, just just the acting clips. You know that some there are under meme videos. You know, like oh look at this, this is this is so campy and silly. And I'm like, not really. I mean, maybe some of the dialogue is, but they're they're doing a pretty good job in in some cases. The documentary did show some clips where the the acting wasn't as good. You know, like they're acting against someone who is really good, but then the other guy's like just stale. But it's charmingly bad, though. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's charming. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Yeah, it's like some guy that that's maybe a waiter uh, in real life, but he's trying to break into acting, and he's his main claim to fame is that he's a stud, stud-looking guy. So he just comes into the scene and he's acting against a more professional person. <laughs> They're delivering dialogue back and forth, and the guy's like, "Oh no." gun you know or something like that and and the other person's putting on a clinic by comparison and those moments i thought were very funny and amusing um personally i really like the stuff involving uh what was it the movie series night's eye or night eyes oh the one about the security guard who installs cameras (laughs) in uh this like sexy mansion so he can catch people having affairs and then blackmail them yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't originally, like, in favor of that. I, I liked how his character pointed out, what the hell are we doing, you know? And uh, it turned into a series. And the actor who was in that, I was like, oh, I think I've seen him in bigger stuff. But he, he also kind of really explained the market of independent cinema, specifically, of course, erotic thrillers. But he explained it, the downfall of it rather well in terms of market saturation, in terms of the video stores, the global market itself. And uh, he really articulated these things uh, very well, you know, I guess because he was also a producer of them too. And it also shocked me that they got Fred Olin Ray as one of the oh, subjects. Yeah. And and I'd never seen him in person. Like, it's kind of like when I first saw Wes Craven, the visual of Wes Craven, like how he looks. Uh, this was back when I was... I don't know, in middle school, and uh, they were talking about Scream 2, and they were interviewing Wes Craven. I was like, that's what he looks like? He's just a, a soft-spoken man, you know? And I thought he looked, he like, in my head, I was like, he must be the devil. You know, this was as a kid. I mean, his name is very scary. His name is a little scary, and on top of that, he made, like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. He made all these, like, really, you know, iconic horror movies. Uh, that were edgy and but also really frightening and and everything and I kept thinking like oh this guy must be really groovy looking you know in that sense and no he's just a dude who wears a cardigan you know he's he's fine you know so it's the same with with um with like Fred Olin Ray he's just got like a ja- suit jacket on like a blazer and he's talking about the industry and uh, how it started off with million dollar budgets and then as it went on you would get a million dollars to make four movies instead of one movie. And so the quality, you know, you really had to kind of beef up the, the acting and the screenplays and to accentuate the positives and eliminate the negatives, you know? And uh, that was the stuff I really liked in the documentary. That and, of course, the analysis of the, um, the themes, the thematic elements of these movies and how they relate to sexuality and gender politics and, and, and all that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I should specify that when I say this is, like, well-timed, like, there is a resurgence in studying the erotic thriller and, like, re-examining some of those movies as, like, actually good. And uh, I'm thinking of stuff like the Criterion Channel currently has an erotic thriller 
um, sub collection. And Karina Longworth is putting in two seasons of her podcast studying. Uh, she already wrapped her series on the erotic 80s. And currently there's one on the erotic 90s um, where she's like going film by film on sort of the more blockbuster end of this subgenre. And then also uh, Adrian Lyon last year had his like big comeback film with Ben Affleck on uh, it went directly to Hulu. Uh, ben Affleck and Alan <laughs> DeArmas. And I, I really did not like that movie very much, but oh, that one, oh, yeah. the one where everyone was like, "Oh, this is going to be sexy and crazy and everything." And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember that. Yeah, I should be like, honest. Like, even though Line is like the auteur of that higher end of the genre, I don't really like his movies very much. Like, I like yeah. Nine and a Half Weeks, okay, but I, I don't think he makes the best of these thrillers, mostly because his come off as kind of misogynistic and boneheaded in a way that I don't think most of them (laughs) actually do. But what this movie covers is like a whole subterrain below that stuff. That's already getting critically reappraised. So like, it's great that it's arriving now when those movies are getting their, their due is like something that was kind of overlooked and undervalued. Instead, it's like looking at the really cheap stuff. Like, no one's talking about night eyes three as something that needs to be like (laughs) academically studied right now, but this movie is, you know, well, why not? You know, why not do that? You know, that's, that's the cool part of it is these things can be reevaluated a little bit and, or a lot of bit even, uh, they go out of their way to, um, in this documentary to present them as, I don't want to say high art, but, uh, with a lot of artistic merit, yeah, it's it's pretty honest about like the fuzzy borders with pornography and like how much overlap there are there, but yeah. it's more of that like early porno chic era of pornography where like things had like a plot. But when I said earlier that like no one is academically studying that stuff, I, that's a little bit of an a lie because there are a lot of talking heads in this film that are academics and the reason it like really won me over is because I just read this book last year called um, Sexy Thrills, Undressing the Erotic Thriller, yeah, which was specifically an academic text that my buddy Hannah, who is earlier in this uh, podcast recording because she went to a few of the movies with me, she lent me that book last year. It's written by Nina K. Martin. And Nina K. Martin is in this movie as a talking head. And like all the stuff that I read from that book that I was like waiting for the movie to touch on it eventually gives her a platform to, you know, gush about the virtues of these like cheaper, less respected, even within the field of erotic thrillers, like less respected erotic schlock. And the main thesis of that book is that a lot of these films are actually marketed to a female audience, even more so than a male one. And it has this sort of like seduction fantasy that is specifically geared towards female viewers. I agree with that. That's um, that's a, that's an interesting you know point. They they talk about that whole gaze thing. You know, like there was that one moment. Uh, I forget the name of the movie that they showcased, but it, it was the last line of the movie where uh, the main character is laying on the ground and or the carpet in the, in this house. I guess there was a scene where he got hurt, and the couple that the bad guy couple they're walking out to their car. They start the engine and it blows up. And the guy inside the house goes, checkmate. Right, right. <laughs> I was like, man, that's cool. You know, there were there were different things like that spread out through the movie that like guys would like. 
but then you got the female aspect of it too that they cover and they're they're kind of like well you know women like sex stuff too it's not just the tender stuff you know it's not just the emotional stuff they dig they can dig sexual stuff just like the men men can dig sexual stuff and the emotional stuff too it's not as black and white well the way that they draw that lineage is like not only is erotic thrillers like a direct deviation from noir and like derives a lot of its narrative and like visual tropes from noir but it's also like bodice ripper trashy novels that you buy at the supermarket that are basically pornography for women a lot of that same storytelling is carried over here and i think i guess that's where that lineage goes to the lifetime movies as well it's the exact same like kind of seduction narrative that is typically marketed to that audience but we don't really think of the erotic thrillers being part of that when that was like a large part of what was going on yeah i really appreciated that they brought up that that was the starting point was the film noir stuff uh from the the great depression and onward you know to hitchcock and um, you know all those filmmakers uh they even included the maltese falcon which i thought was pretty cool yeah uh you know in in the whole thing and they they framed it where you know like the conversations in these movies you know they're saying one thing on the surface but really it's a, it's like a it's like an erotic scene because they're not really talking about what they're talking about they're talking about you know, let's go to my hotel or, uh, you know, stuff like that, you know, and yeah, that kind of like getting around the Hayes code kind of, uh, insinuation. Yeah. Which is brilliant to me is when you can do something, uh, more than what's on the surface, uh, than what's being spoken. It's so it's almost like, a uh, like a, like you said, they're getting around the Hayes code. They're, um, you know, playing around with the tools that they're, they have the cards that they've been dealt. And, uh, that, that was really, uh, really neat. And uh, indeed, you know, they, they go through um, the times, they go through into the 60s, and then they kind of jump to the 80s. And a little bit with the 70s, they say, okay, there was a sex positiveness in the 70s. You know, you had Deep Throat, you had all these different things that were kind of coming into the, uh, the public zeitgeist and uh, the cultural zeitgeist and everything. And, you know, it even penetrated, well, bad word, but it went into the the whole feminist movement, which they weren't totally cool with the, the pornography, but it kind of segued into all that, into politics. And then the 80s come along, you got the AIDS epidemic, you got Ronald Reagan, you got all this, all these different things that are kind of coming to a head. And it's like, you know, the whole Puritan aspect of America coming back into, <laughs> into regular life, which maybe it never left. That's another thing to kind of get into. So it's like, how do we sell these kind of movies, you know, to the general public, if you, if you will, you know, how do we get people talking? How do we do this? How do we do that? And that's where, um, what was it? The Brian De Palma uh, film? Uh, what was it? Body Double? No, it was uh, Dressed to Kill. Was the Dressed one to Kill? Yes, added, yes. Like was like the dictionary of like erotic thriller terms. You can cherry pick specific images from that film that basically like exploded the whole subgenre. Yeah, and what I really like too is how they picked apart Glenn Close's character in Fatal Attraction and uh, how they were like, you can see it from this point of view that she's like a psycho and she's going to tear up this marriage, but really she's like a tragic figure and, you know, she's she's got like intelligence and agency to her. And, uh, and then they explained the alternate ending they had to shoot because of a test screen that went poorly. Yeah. 
and and that 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 stuff really resonated i was like oh man i felt so bad for for them but the writer at the end of the uh his his little bit said you know there's that little coda after uh they shoot glenn close where they slowly pan in on the family photo and it, and he's like i read that as they're never going to be the same again you know and this whole event changed them and then he he said but other people saw it as uh this is a happy ending they can return to that yeah order has been restored order's been restored and he was like that's just a bad interpretation <laughs> and i was like yeah what the hell's wrong with people you know i mean i kind of read it that way i think that movie fucking shits the bed at the end yeah yeah maybe i like the alternate ending though that they showed where she just flat out you know kills herself and frames it as if uh michael douglas did it and then leaves it up to the wife to determine how she's gonna take this you know what road does she take does she give the evidence that shows that glenn close planned this or does she hide it and let michael douglas take the fall you know and thus get some retribution for his actions and uh, i thought that was pretty cool they also uh obviously touch on um how omnipresent michael douglas was in this genre like just casting michael douglas himself is like an erotic thriller trope <laughs> yeah yeah he wasn't just in that one movie he was in basic instinct and uh i think wasn't he in a third one i don't remember he's but... in one i really like called disobedience that's got oh. this like virtual reality oh yeah element to it. very fun <laughs> that was a weird one uh they talk a little they don't talk but they show a little bit of sliver in there when they talk about the the whole voyeuristic aspect of these films or how that that was a general you know yeah. theme and uh i was like man if they had only talked a little bit more about sliver because that movie stuck out to me when i was a kid i saw it a couple times on cable and uh you know because the whole uh, video aspect of it I, I really was attracted to the whole idea that you could do a movie and it's all about this really seedy part of uh videography you know which is surveillance and how far do you take it do you even do it in the first place you know that kind of thing and then of course you had the whole sex element to it there was a scene in there where uh sharon stone after a date with um uh billy baldwin there was a scene where they were at dinner having a date and they were kind of challenging one another trying to one-up each other with regards to uh what they can do in public and she takes off her underwear and she's like i won you know so she goes back home she, you know she's trying to relax and then he walks in he's butt naked <laughs> the first shot you see um, of him is, is just, just his ass and uh <laughs> he walks into frame but it's it's funny at first but then it becomes very quickly kind of sinister you know he's not technically a bad guy in the movie but he is kind of writing that hard line where it's like uh, you're kind of inappropriate bro i always liked that about erotic thrillers that like the sex in them is never actually sexy. It's very like aggressive, like war of the sexes, kind of like wrestling. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is about that, but I find it very like ugly and upsetting in a way that actually is thrilling. And it's like these characters are trying to like dominate each other physically instead of like actually having like a passionate moment. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are the good ones. The ones that really uh, challenge you and uh, challenge each other in the, in the movie, the characters uh yeah i get bored or at least i did when when i used to um, watch these on cable um with the ones that were more just about the sex you know um 
not not the Red Shoe Diaries. I do remember uh, students talking about that. That show bored me. Well, this this movie talks very lovingly about the Red Shoe Diaries as this like creative breakthrough in the genre, which, which I'm sure it was. You know, I just I don't remember a whole lot about it other than David Duchovny and some acting aspects of it that were genuinely creative, but it just didn't really thrill me or anything. Like they do, they did show that clip of of the actress kind of making the um her uh, partner bark and gunpoint. Gun yeah. Of course, she doesn't mean to actually shoot him, but she is threatening him, like, hey, bark like a dog, you know? And then she stops and they, you know, make out and everything. <laughs> well, like, selected clips like that, that, like, the soup style, like, cherry picking of those absurdist moments yeah, is going to be more entertaining than actually watching hundreds of hours of this stuff because it's very, like, samey, samey. It can be, but then you got those nuggets. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. Every now yeah. and then you'll find a good one, which anybody who, like, watches horror movies especially the cheap stuff uh, knows that feeling Well, you'll watch like 30 shitty movies to get to one that you love. Yeah. But I do like that this director by watching like over 300 movies over the past few years uh, preparing for this uh, has basically driven himself mad. And like in some of the better editing moments of this, it kind of becomes like that movie, ask anybody a few years ago, uh, Liz Perchel's film where she like, links all of these like porno tropes i've been desperately trying to get her to to let me see the movie yeah it's got yeah, some yeah. legal distribution issues but yeah. the, the the genius thing about that film is it, it links all of these protagonists across different porno films so that like you're basically watching a hundred people play the same character and you like watch them go through their day from like sunrise to sunset cruising all these different traditional gay sex uh hot spots. And this movie does the same thing where like it starts with the sunrise at all these like identical McMansions in Los Angeles and ends at sunset at these like similar Los Angeles vistas. And in between the movie kind of like goes mad with this like purple narration kind of describing this wealth porn and these like similar settings and these similar characters and it kind of stitches them together. So they all are like the same archetype over and over and over again. Yeah. They go over these tropes, but they also go over when these tropes began, like the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then they, they show you these like locations in Los Angeles. That was a big part was the setting it was almost always Los Angeles. It was never necessarily like New York or Chicago or anything. I'm sure maybe a few of them did, but it was mostly Los Angeles, probably because that's where the productions were. Uh, and the whole, like you said, wealth porn, you know, it was like, oh, they're in these upscale, you know, homes or apartments or whatever. Usually, like, if it's an apartment, it's like a warehouse apartment that was converted to, to living spaces. And that way you can have, like, that, you know, the, the, the shadows or the, uh, the lights coming in through the big windows. And uh, you can have uh, that. There's always, like, that fan. They bring up fans. Yeah, I love that uh, it starts off with that big picture, like, Robin Leach commentary on, like, the Reagan economics of this stuff. But then yeah. it really gets tied up in, like... Yeah, just a hundred shots of a ceiling fan turning slowly <laughs> and how that image will repeat over and over and over again across all of these films. And it's a little absurd, of course, but at the same time, it's true that those movies took that from some noir films, which did use the whole uh, uh, ceiling fan uh, thing. And uh, 
<laughs> and what was cool is the movie picked it up. This documentary picked it apart. Like the video archivist, the character that kind of is the framework for the for this documentary, who I believe is that the director? No, it's an actor. That's an actor. Okay. Well, he's he's reading various essays and books that have been written on erotic thrillers. He's also giving off some uh, philosophy and uh, things of that nature about media. And uh, when he talks about the ceiling fans, or someone's talking about the ceiling fans, they're like, uh, "Oh, as the as the story's churning, so are uh, you know these other things." And I was kind of like, "Are they grasping for straws, or is that true?" No, I think it's ironic. Um, it's ironically inane. Like it's like it's talking poetically about these like fakely poetic images and like yeah. how they look high style and prestige at first but the more you see them the more mundane they become and that's what i'm saying like the movie kind of like documents this director's slow descent into madness we're like watching the same image repeated over and over again across all these films it's almost like he's like losing time and that that like uh noir wraparound device where you're watching this archivist pop all these different videotapes into the uh the little VHS player. Well, it wasn't just it wasn't just a VCR. It was a TV VCR. Yeah, it's one of those like built-in two-in-one things. I just wanted to point that out because I thought that was a pretty neat thing. It was like more convenient. But even that becomes madness, like kind of reflecting this academic study where he has those like conspiracy boards with all the red string connecting these different things. <laughs> and yeah. then uh, at one point, it makes fun of how these titles become really difficult to pin down once you start. Um, looking at international distribution where like one film will be marketed as the sequel to another uh, and then have a different title back in America that shares a title with another film. So they had to like rearrange those titles uh, under the same distributor. And then the box designs would be like very similar. Yeah. yeah. Exactly the same. Yeah, Repeat the same poster across three different movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I feel like this is like a document of madness too. Like in some ways it's a limited scope where, this is only covering American films. It mostly focuses on the video store output and some basic cable extensions of that. But like, even with that sliver of a study, if you're going to do it thoroughly, it's just like force feeding yourself schlock that is very like generic to the point where it's literally the same movie over and over and over again. And I really liked how honest it was about how submerging yourself in only that material like makes you lose your goddamn mind because I've, I've felt that before <laughs> myself yeah the the filmmaker does in fact go through the or the video archivist and the filmmaker guy and go through i guess the the archivist is the uh avatar you know, yeah for the filmmaker and as he's talking about it as the movie goes along we're seeing what is eventually is described as the oversaturation of the market and as all these movies keep piling up on the guy's desk he starts kind of repeating things. He starts kind of going further and further down into this, like you said, almost like this uh, crevice or um, cave where everything starts to blur and gets darker and you don't really know what's what, or you see the same images all the time in your head and nothing is really as unique as it used to be, you know? And uh, that part was pretty cool. You know, that, that aspect of the, of the documentary is pretty neat. Uh, in in terms of uh, well, documentary filmmaking itself, I love it when these movies can these documentaries can kind of go beyond the format of Talking Heads 
and become something all, almost akin to F for fake from Orson Welles, you know, something that's really creative is very essayic. Yeah. And it's like more personal and less like cookie cutter. We're like, yeah. even those, uh, even that extensive, like eight hour documentary about nightmare on Elm street. That's like very well respected. It is like only impressive because it's a collection of anecdotes. And a lot of the footage is clips from the movies and then clips of actors, producers, writers, directors sitting in chairs and talking directly to camera. And this yeah. very well could be that kind of movie. And I'd even contend that that's what Woodland's Dark and Days Bewitched is. But I think this is a step above because it becomes personal. It becomes a, about its own existence and how like absurd of an exercise this is, considering how schlocky the source material is. Yeah. And like that's really like what floored me about it. Like out of all of the stuff I saw at Overlook, there were some movies that already premiered at other festivals that I was really excited about, um, especially Smoking Causes Coughing and The Five Devils. And like those were the movies that like satisfied me the most. But this is really the one that stood out as like a special discovery at the festival where like I didn't know if I was actually going to like it. I mean, obviously the subject matter attracted me, but I didn't know how good the quality was going to be. I think that this was its world premiere was at Overlook. So yeah. I had no like prior critical consensus to gauge like how well respected this was. And I walked away thinking like, oh, yeah, this is like actually the gem of the festival in a way. Like this is the, the discovery from the lineup of something that really could break out and be special as long as you have an interest in erotic thrillers as a subject. Well, I think even beyond having an interest in erotic thrillers, if you just have an interest in film history, this can be very a rewarding experience to watch this movie. You know, don't be, um, what's the word, daunted by its length, uh, <laughs> uh, by the runtime of the film. You know, I, I almost was scared going into it, like, okay, if it's that long of a movie, the fact that, you know, a movie is uh, like three hours or near three hours, you know, feels like, can it hold my attention that whole time? Can it, does it, will it drag? Will it um, lose focus? Will it just repeat itself, you know, just to fill out the time? No, this documentary never does that. It's, it, it held my attention from beginning to end, from sunrise to sunset. And uh, that was a really special thing. I agree this was a gem of the festival. You know, there are episodes, like a lot of Johnny Carson episodes from the 60s, 70s don't exist anymore, like the tapes were destroyed or, you know, I mean, there's people that tape them at home and you can see some stuff on YouTube. So for us, the idea of, you know, the idea that there is this mystical lost master tape of this bizarre episode that may have actually gone to air has always been exciting to us as well. And the idea that there are shows, things like this might have happened probably did happen we just don't have that record of them anymore well, but here's the, an instance where we do the think. things that are lost to that it was never recovered and a lot of mm. the, the 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 they didn't save every single tape of shows yeah. but it's interesting when you look back and think about how moments happened on live television that they couldn't stop you couldn't take back what christine Chubbuck did on tv like that actually occurred there's shocking events that have occurred in the history of live television up until quite recent memory where that was penetrative to the entire you know collective consciousness of everybody that watched this experience and then it's gone so i assume that you're covering the movies that you saw at the festival on moviegoing.rocks movie going with bill <laughs> yeah i should probably change the domain name at some point uh i like it 
<laughs> I, I like it too, but at the same time, I think it confuses some people. Like, do they think it's like a music thing? Like, movie going rocks, you know, like, you know, with the devil horns and all that? Or or do they think, uh, you know, this is just the domain name he could get? It's kind of a combination of the two. Uh, it stuck out to me, and also it was one of the cheaper domain names to get. <laughs> I couldn't get .com. I'm telling you right now, I just Googled movie going with Bill. It brought me right to moviegoing.rocks. So your SEO is strong. <laughs> okay. All right. No need okay. to worry. <laughs> okay. Yeah, actually, Google is, is uh, my biggest, uh, that's where the biggest referral comes from uh, uh, for people to, to find my uh, blog. Uh, so I'm pretty proud of that, I guess. But yes, what I'm going to cover once I finish my little home festival uh, of Overlook, uh, it's mostly just covering the movies that I saw and maybe my overall experience, which was very limited. You know, I went to go see uh, Renfeld. Uh, I went to go see the uh, the Uptown Britannia screening, which uh, was the second screening of Renfield that day. And I went to it because, you know, Nick Cage was going to be there and I thought it might be a very lively experience, which from what I heard was, in fact, a lively experience. But a lot of us got turned away uh, because they had just filled up the seats. So I had to get back in my car and go to Wendy's and kind of eat fries and uh, drown my sorrows in salty crispiness and um, go home. But so far, the movies I've seen, and I only have a few more to go through, but so far the movies I've seen have been pretty excellent. Uh, I, I can't say that there's been any that i would rate under three stars three out of five so far they're the lowest is 3.5 out of five for me and that's pretty good uh i feel you know that's very good actually yeah at the top of this episode we complained at length about one that we really did not like so you, you did a better job than us <laughs> yeah no so far the two top ones are smoking causes coughing and and the documentary we just discussed you know and uh I watched A Street Cat Named Desire, short film uh, made locally, uh, as you can tell from its cute title. It's about a stranger that enters New Orleans by going into a bar, and he asks, is Bourbon Street near here? And the, bar the female bartender was like, no. Just straight up, no. You know, and I was like, oh, she must get asked that all the time. Uh, the plot of it is basically they're like a back and forth. He's kind of like, you know, coming on to her a little bit. She's kind of pushing him away a little bit, but they ultimately go home together. And, you know, one thing leads to another and it turns out that she turns her dates into cats. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's actually got some really cool conversation in it. Some really cool dialogue, uh, back and forth between the two, like, um, He's not sure how far this date's going to go, but at the same time, he's intrigued. And then, of course, she's got this conflict in her. Like, do I turn this guy into a cat or do I suppress that, that feeling? <laughs> Again, it's a little horror short. So, yeah. Not to bring it back to erotic thrillers so soon, but uh, my favorite New Orleans set film is Paul Schrader's Cat People remake which is very much a trashy erotic thriller about people who uh, transform into cats to have yeah. animalistic sex. I feel bad that I missed that screening that happened, the Wildwood program screening at oh, the yeah, Canal Place with Paul Schrader in person. 
but yeah, A Street Cat Named Desire, very cute, very neat little uh, short film, but had some really neat experimental type takes in it. Uh, and I want to say, I don't like to throw around experimental that much because sometimes when people say that, it's not really an experiment that was that happened. It's, it has already been done stylistically somewhere else. So it's more, I guess, creative, you know, in terms of how it was shot. You know, I think the majority of the movie is black and white. It, it turns to color by the end. And the photography is absolutely beautiful. And towards the end, when things start to turn bad for the male character, it, it starts to get very erratic, the, the, uh, the camera, you know, and the editing. It, it gets faster paced and a little shaky to kind of, you know, represent uh, the change of this guy's body bodily form and um we don't see him turn into a cat but obviously that's the implication is that that's what has happened and um the whole process is going to go over again is she going to find love or is she going to get another cat to fill that void <laughs> i guess i don't know uh so it was a nice it was a nice short film it was, it was pretty cool the other short film i saw was from beyond or rather from dot beyond I believe this is a, I don't know, is this a Russian film or this is, this is definitely Eastern European, I believe. According to Overlook's website, it is from Norway. Oh, well, I got it really wrong. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, no, the film is a, um, I believe it's about first contact, you know, but it's done, you know, with aliens, but the aliens are not necessarily like ones that's, that are like in human form and that speak and, it's more like uh, tentacle blobs, kind of like if they were to discover uh, cell-based life on Mars, but it's like just bacteria or something, you know. But in this case, they are, you know, blobs, and it's told through a combination of the perspective uh, footage that's like from the perspective of government files and images that are almost like voyeuristic pornography. Take that to mean what you will, but uh, basically the the movie ends sort of with this film of uh, a guy humping a uh, one of these <laughs> one of these blobs or trying to use it for these means, you know, to kind of titillate and stuff. Like, oh, we're going to take advantage of these beings because they can't talk back, and we're going to go that way with them. Uh, I think that was too exp- that that aspect, while absurd and. Uh, kind of really silly and kind of brought down the mood of of the short again this is a horror short but still it was kind of weird to throw in there it still kind of expressed for me this this idea that humanity can fuck up a good thing you know which can be first contact with with another uh species another alien species that that exists somewhere out there in the universe and um this first contact ultimately leads to us wanting to have sex with them yeah it reminded me of clerks too there was a scene where jay and silent bob are talking about you know well jay is talking to silent bob because he's silent bob uh about wanting to do more with their lives and uh jay's like man i would love to be the first guy to to meet an alien life form and fuck it you know and then he's like yeah people would look at me and go yeah there's that dude Homeboy fucked a Martian. And that's immediately what came to mind, and that kind of brought the the short film down a peg or two. Uh, I was like, that's probably not what they intended, 
but uh that's what i because because i'm a weirdo I, I i tend to reference all sorts of uh, images and movies whenever i see some some goofy stuff like that so that's that's kind of what I thought. Well, they're inviting um, you to compare it to the Stuart Gordon film with practically the same name. Which yes. is funny that both of the shorts that you mentioned have borrowed their names from other pre-existing works that makes them like impossible to Google. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, From Beyond does put a period between the, the two words. So it kind of makes it almost like that's the extension, the file extension, Beyond. Got it. Uh, that kind of thing. But yes, I did think of the Stuart Gordon film a little bit. I was like, okay, the only comparison I can draw really is that there's a blob character. And that people are supernaturally horny. And that people are horny about it. So maybe that's, that's yeah, maybe that, that takes takes a little bit from it. I don't know. Um, the other one I saw that I'd like to talk about a little bit is uh, Give Me an A, which is this um, collective film. It's like... Uh, What's the, what's the word for it, it where it's made anthology? up anthology anthology film thank you uh it starts off with the framework which is a group of cheerleader leaders who um perform you know a song and dance about uh abortion rights and um health rights for women and and just for anyone in general but specifically for women and then it goes into the short films or the short segments rather uh, this is all in the wake of the um, removal of Roe versus Wade, the, the breaking away of that uh, from the Supreme Court. And it's a response to it, uh, which I thought was excellent. I was, I was like, okay, this is an excellent concept. And that was a very recent decision. So, you know, they were able to, to put this out there so quickly. You know, there was a, that time crunch. So they really had to amp up the creativity on what you can do, what can't you do. In that amount of time and and the amount of material that you have, can you put together the cast and crew for this? And a lot of stuff, and it surprised me. They had Alyssa Milano at one point. They had Gina Torres at another point. Um, there were some names in this. Uh, there were, of course, a lot of unknowns, too. But still, it brought a lot of um, notoriety here and there. Uh, my favorite short film was actually the first one they showed called The Voiceless. It's kind of like this weird wonderfully um, uh, crafted and executed horror short. And I, I don't mean to say wonderful, like lovely. It's just wonderfully done uh, where the Roe versus Wade decision-making uh, Supreme Court ruling comes out, you know, like they say, it's been overturned, you know, it's on the, the TV set. This woman hears it. She just turns off the set because she's like, okay, you know, I'm frustrated. Fuck this, you know. And, uh, she goes to the bathroom after her uh, after going to bed, and then the next morning, you know, she goes to the bathroom, and you know, she's brushing her teeth, doing all that whole thing. Uh, and when she looks back in the mirror, her mouth is completely closed, like there's no mouth left, you know. Hence the voiceless, and uh, you know, she's panicking, like you know you would expect. She even cuts her mouth open uh, with, I think it was with a, a razor or something. And suddenly she's pregnant, you know, she's got a baby bump, a big one. She goes outside to look for help, and every woman in on her block are facing the same exact predicament. And it becomes like this scene out of uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake, you know, where the opening scene where Sarah Polly comes out of her house and the camera's whirling around her, and uh, there's just this zombie problem going on, and she doesn't know what the hell to do. And it's the same kind of shot, 
but the tension is so thick uh, in that segment, so so much so that I, you know, I almost had anxiety watching it, and I, I thought like this this is brilliant, you know, this is a brilliant little uh, short. the The rest of the segments range in um, duration and range in. I don't want to say effectiveness, but definitely in impact. I mean, that's pretty standard for horror anthologies is like, even the really great ones will have like one stinker thrown in there. <laughs> and, and none of them are really stinkers. I don't want to say that there were any that I disliked, but I would say there were ones that I liked more than others. You know, like there was one, um, uh, you know, that was like about like medical experimentation. There was another that was about a future where if you lose a parent, specifically a mother, you are issued a government, uh, a government issued worker who will only ever reach you over the phone. And their main dialogue that they speak with the 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 child or the child of the uh, the, the deceased uh, parent is, uh, "You'll be okay, sweetie." And I thought that was pretty dystopian. And I was like, oh, man, that's that's pretty messed up. And she's like, say something real. And she's like, I can't, you know. And yeah, it, it presents, you know, these problems that, that women face when they're trying to get their health care, you know, when they're trying yeah. to get uh, their what they need, you know. And the potential paths that this country can go into, uh, the worst case scenarios or just the more realistic scenarios. Uh, there's one that was a little comical, which uh, or was comical. It was actually a pretty lighthearted uh, bit where it showed the male side of it, where hey, look, you guys asked for this. This is what could happen to you, you know. But it was like a comedy. It uh, it had James Gunn's wife. He, she's an actress. I I forget her name, but she played in uh, Peacemaker, the TV show with um, John Cena, and. She plays this woman who is on a date with this surfer guy, and they go back to the, her place. They are about to have sex. Everything's consensual. Everything's cool. And she kind of brings up, like, what happens if I get pregnant? And he's like, uh, I don't know. I've never discussed that before. And so she gets on the phone with FaceTime or whatever with her lawyer, and they have, like, this conversation. And the lawyer's like, do you consent to have sex? And da 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 And the guy's like, um... Yeah, I guess so. Sure. <laughs> He's kind of playing along with it. And uh, they're like, you understand that if she gets pregnant, she does not hold any responsibility to the child. It becomes yours. And the guy's like, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, He's not thinking that, that that will happen. And then, of course, the obvious happens. And the very end of the, the short, <laughs> nine months later, you know, uh, the lawyer presents the, the, the baby to him. And he uh, you know, he, it vomits on him and he's like, uh, okay, what do I do now? You know, uh, it, it was a pretty funny little, little segment. Uh, the rest of the segments are, are more, more or less somber and some are also a little, not little, but very dark. There's one that reminded me of the handmaid's tale because it had like a religious edge to it, like a, a future where women are just basically, uh, incubators you know that, that they're just used as a vessel for the child and then there's that cycle where well if the child is a, is a girl the same thing is going to happen to her and it's just this, this vicious system in place that's very religious and uh but mixed in with like historical precedents and everything and it's really fucked up um overall that one was a very good 
anthology film, but it, it had some genuinely discomforting parts, which it should. This is this is a topic that is that needs to be discussed, and artists should have the freedom to uh, to really go for it and and explore it. And maybe if it, if it, if they do it again, if they'll have more time to really flesh things out. Uh, to go further, and I, I'd be really excited to see that uh, and to share that with others. I'd be—I'm excited to share this one with others. Uh, <laughs> if anyone were to come to me and go, "Hey, what would you recommend in this post Roe versus Wade world?" and I'd be like, "Well, give me an A is a good one." You know, it says a lot. It has a lot to say, and it uh, has a lot to showcase. And that's—you know—that's what you get out of it, and it's really, really good. I saw another movie in the lineup that was about pregnancy uh somewhat about abortion um but more about how the medical industry is very indifferent to women as people when they're giving birth and it's like more about preserving the child than it is about the mother yeah um this movie called birth rebirth which will be playing on shutter later this year uh screened at overlook okay in the movie there's this like pathologist who's doing these like Frankenstein style experiments in the morgue below a hospital. Oh, and uh, the other main character is this like much more compassionate, like warm nurse that works on the hospital's main floors and like her young daughter dies and the freak mad scientist in the basement takes the little girl's body home and like raises her from the dead using like, unethically harvested fetal tissue. <laughs> I like how you, you, you said that unethically harvested. Well, like, yeah, oh, it, it starts with like her doing her best to like contain where she gets the fetal tissue from. And I don't want to spoil it too much. Sure, also, yeah. The movie's like very um, matter of fact about women's bodies and like what it means to be pregnant. And like, you know, it's not like a tampon commercial or something where they were like really hiding it behind euphemisms. Like the movie's pretty like out in the open about, what your body goes through when you're you're in that medical state so you do get in depth step-by-step um instruction on how they derive this like serum that brings this little girl back from the dead but i I don't want to spoil it because the uh the discovery is part of the fun and the movie does have fun with the topic as morbid as it is they like form this sort of like makeshift family where like they take watching the undead little kid you know watching her comatose body uh, in shifts where they'll be like, honey, I'm home. You know, how was work? And then the other one goes to work for the day. But it really escalates in this morbid way where like it gets out of control where they have to get the fetal tissue from. And it just becomes really like sad and disturbing um, in an interesting way. (laughs) So like maybe not as directly about Roe v. Wade as give me an A, but it, it definitely touches on a similar topic and especially when it comes like to the difference between like the scientific study of a you know of a patient's body versus like actually treating them like a human being and like addressing them as a person um instead of just like a vessel for like an unborn child uh which i feel like a lot of the legislation around um abortion is is more about preserving the fetal tissue than it is about you know the child well the mother or the trans father depending on oh sure uh, yeah scenario i think when i said child i mean more like when the child is a child you know when it, oh when that it too yeah up. as soon as the kid's out of the body fuck them <laughs> that's kind right. of the policy yeah, that's, <laughs> no it's it, it's 
it's precious then it gets born it's like well kid you don't get medicaid so screw you or school lunches so bye yeah it's more pro fetus than pro life ultimately which is very strange i don't understand <laughs> that logic but i never will so you know but it's it's cool that um you get these movies uh, that play at film festivals that they don't have to explore the issue directly like give me an a kind of does Although even in some of the segments, Give Me an A is, is very creative and doesn't necessarily state it up front. But you get movies like this, Birth Rebirth, and, and it's a horror movie, you know, true yeah. to its nature. But you could derive some of these themes and aspects uh, from it and, and kind of compare it to real life. You know, like, oh, right. Yeah, that's where we're at. <laughs> and coming from the other direction, like... The Frankenstein story is like the oldest horror story out there. Like it like birthed the genre in a lot of ways. Uh yeah. ditto for science fiction. So like for them to find new thematic territory that it can be applied to in like very up-to-date political discourse, I think is like one of the reasons why genre films are so exciting and why this kind of festival is so cool. Oh great. You know, completely one hundred percent. I do have two more I could rattle off pretty quickly. Birth Rebirth will be on Shudder, but I don't know where these other two movies are going. I do know that they are high profile enough that they do have distribution. Okay. One was uh, called Mr. Organ, which is the new film from David Ferrier. That's on my tickled. list. Yeah, that's on my list. I'm going to be watching that next. I think you might like it more than I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is from the guy who did Tickled, right? Right. And, okay. you know, it's kind of the same setup where he finds this sort of like unbelievable villain that's kind of hiding out in the open. And like the movie is supposed to be this expose of this like complete and total monster. Um, instead of commissioning tickle fetish videos, this particular villain um, starts off as this like parking lot bully where he like puts boots on people's tires. Oh, what a dickhead. And then extorts them, you know, for ridiculous amounts of money to have the boots removed. And the more petty the back and forth between the director and this like parking lot bully becomes, he starts to uncover other things about this guy's past and about like his sort of like cult leader behavior that's very abusive with like the people in his life. And honestly, I'm very frustrated by this film because it is like the document of a failure. Like Tickled is like an easy setup, like T ball success. Like I'm going to find out more about this complete and total asshole monster. And then he does. And it's like, wow, how horrifying that a person like that exists. And in this movie, he finds a similar subject, but the more he digs into it and the more he tries to uncover a personality behind this like evil empire, it turns out there is no personality there. This guy's just draining and frustrating and there's just like nothing to him besides the fact that he's like evil incarnate and like by the end of the movie it becomes like a document of a failure like david farrier just sort of walks away like i can't believe i wasted years of my life trying to pinpoint this impossible subject and i can't stand <laughs> to spend another minute in his company so yeah the movie is like inherently frustrating because of that setup but I think a lot of people will find it like interesting conceptually. And the subject that he's like trying to pinpoint really is fascinating in a way. But he's also like an energy vampire where like he just babbles on and on about nothing. 
uh, often holding the director hostage on the speakerphone, just rambling for hours. And like the audience has to sit through that abuse as well. And it's kind of mesmeric to where like you feel like you're getting closer to something that really just doesn't exist. And I don't know. It's like a very strange film. Coming closer to nothing. <laughs> to avoid. Exactly that, yeah. I'm looking forward to it now, yeah. And the last one I'll shout out uh, has a great premise. Uh, it's called Late Night with the Devil. Oh, yeah, I heard about this one. I, I wanted to catch a screener of it or see it live, but it just didn't become available. I'd say it's probably one of the higher profile movies that played at the festival. Like, I feel like it's going to be a small cult hit. Um, maybe in the same way that like WNUF Halloween special is because oh, it has the exact same setup. Um, but instead of like being an eighties television broadcast on like a local news channel, it's a seventies television broadcast on a late night with Johnny Carson type talk show. Okay. Basically it's the Halloween special of this, like Johnny Carson, Dick Cavett kind of seventies show uh, where as a rating stunt during sweeps week, they stage this live exorcism uh, of this like little girl who's possessed by uh, a demonic figure who calls himself Mr. Riggles. And, uh, you know, <laughs> naturally, once the devil is let loose on the American public through the broadcast, things get very strange and supernatural and violent um, and actually like achieves a lot on a small budget. Like it really uses the CG effects it has at its disposable to do some really weird loopy shit in the last like 20 or 30 minutes. So yeah, if you really like the WNUF movie, this is definitely worth a look. Or if you really like that like 70s like TV land Nick at Night style of like talk show, game show broadcast, like uh the times when like Charles Nelson Riley and like Paul Lind were like t- you know TV stars, uh you know, this is definitely worth a look. I'd yeah. say the only thing that holds it back from being like super great is that it cheats. A little bit in the way that WNUF doesn't like in that movie there's commercial breaks with like actual parodies yeah. of TV commercials in between the main drama this one cheats by like during the commercial break it cuts to this like quote-unquote documentary footage showing the characters interacting between camera takes okay. in these sort of like impossible angles that makes it not feel like authentic found footage but like it's worth it to kind of overlook the shortcuts like that uh, because the ending is so over the top and it's like demonic spectacle that, you know, it's still a fun novelty and would make for great Halloween viewing. What you uh, described kind of feels like um, this movie I saw recently. I believe it was from Amanda Kramer uh, from Please Baby Please. Uh, It's called Give Me Pity. I am dying to see that movie. <laughs> I saw it, I saw it on Amazon. It's on Amazon. I, I mean, you have to rent it, but yeah, yeah, it, it's there. And uh, I, I was hooked on it when I saw the trailer uh, out of the film festival circuit, and I, I was like, "What is this?" You know, it's the premises or the concept is a 1970s style TV special, like. Um, you know, a one woman skit show kind of thing with this, uh, this lady who it's all centered on her, you know, she's the central focus. I'm going to be a superstar. This is my show. And slowly, but surely she, she kind of, it's almost like its own exorcism through her performances, her little skits, you know, one by one, she's slowly revealing that she's kind of possessed by a demon of sorts. 
whether that demon is her own narcissism or whether it's an actual demon or whether it's her own insecurities, whatever, she has this presence in her that needs to come out uh, in order for her to survive. And, oh man, that performance from her, I, 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 you know, is just an incredible, what, what the Amanda Kramer does is incredible. And, uh, what you described kind of reminds me of that because it's a, again, 1970s. It's almost its own, I don't want to say found footage, but it's its own presentation where it kind of mocks that look, that aesthetic. Yeah. And not mock like, like demeans it or anything, but mock in that it's almost exactly that aesthetic. And it does a really good job at it. And um, it's like a little musical, but it's also like the self exploration, diving deep and deep and deep into this in this woman's soul and it's it's kind of messed up at the same time it's funny it's got pretty much everything that i like in movies well sight unseen i want to say that's probably a better film than this one just because uh please baby please was one of my very favorite movies from last year and andrea riseborough's performance in that fucking floored me she is so good in that movie she's like feral animal so to hear that that energy carries over into the uh the next project from that director has me very excited. Uh, this one's a little more gimmicky and less artsy, I would say. Oh, okay. More of a straight horror film. Uh, but, you know, still, still very much worth watching. And I think, like I said, Halloween season, like if you've seen WNUF one too many times already, or if you've seen The Exorcist ten too many times already, uh, you know, this is like splits the difference between the two of them in a novel way. Okay. Have you seen the sequel to uh, WNUF? I have not. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm looking at, uh, my DVD rack, I believe the title is the out there Halloween mega tape. That's the name of the, the sequel. And, uh, it's basically that it's like a mega tape tape trader kind of thing. That's the concept. And it, it, it it's like this dual TV special where, uh, first it's a news broadcast talking about the TV special and they got commercials. Like you said before, parodying parody commercials. And then it goes into the TV special, which is about a cult that believes that night they're going to be um, ascended to a UFO spaceship. And of course, it, it ends very funny and a little dark and everything. And it's, it's really very hilarious. I, I highly recommend it. I believe it's only on DVD right now. So you have to kind of find the WNUF filmmakers and go to their uh, big cartel site and, and order it. Uh, at the moment, anyways, I'm sure eventually it's going to hit streaming or something, but uh, it's it's worth tracking down. What was that other one that was like that, where it was like this little kid gets a camcorder for Christmas and he like tapes oh, something on the TV? VH, yes. That was good, too, in, in a similar good, yeah. style, yeah. So I guess this, yeah. is, this is its own subgenre at this point, but I remember a lot of the films in that vein being like VHS era. Yeah. And Late Night with the Devil, I guess, is like dialing the clock back a little further to that like Dick Cavett, Johnny Carson era, which I don't think is as overmined for fresh material as some of the 80s stuff is. Yeah. It still has some novelty within that like, you know, post everything is terrible genre mashup that a lot of people seem to be doing right now. <laughs> they're they're a good troop. I like everything is terrible. Oh, I love them, yeah. Uh, you know, they, they did that one, what was it called? Um, uh, Poochie Woochies or something? That was like their take on the Holy Mountain. Doggy walkie poochie woochie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was their version of uh, Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain. And I, I was floored by it. 
I also love their uh, movie, The Great Satan, which uh, retells the story of Satan through found footage, um, actual found footage. Uh, it's very good. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for joining me, Bill. This was great. Uh, as I said earlier, movie going dot rocks movie going with Bill. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm I'm introducing very soon uh, a new weekly column called the Weekly Moviegoer. Be on the lookout for that, and uh, it's free to subscribe. Although for the Weekly Moviegoer, you have to be a paid subscriber to read that, at least initially. Maybe I'll explore doing some freebies. I don't know, but uh, what are you covering in that series? Oh, it's going to be like a combination of short stories uh, based around moviegoer. the The tagline is uh, stories about where life, love, and Louisiana meet cinema. So it's going to be kind of like stories that I've heard about Louisiana moviegoing, stories that um, I've experienced, going to different theaters, uh, maybe even some interviews with theater programmers or theater managers, or just moviegoers in general. So it's going to be a little more, I think, personal and, and uh, you know, a little more interesting in that that department, as opposed to doing a movie review or an analytic essay or anything like that. I will say generally you do a better job of actually keeping your criticism like with a local lens than I do. You would think with a website named like Swamp Flicks that we would actually be focused on like Louisiana cinema and Louisiana perspectives. But yeah. literally it's just a record of what I happen to be watching around town. <laughs> so uh <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, Swamp Flicks is the region. You're in <laughs> you're in the swamp area, sort of. And uh and it's flicks. You're you're digging these movies, you know, so it's and movie going with Bill, I mean, even from that title, you won't suspect Hollywood South or Louisiana. It's just you know, movies that Bill happens to be watching at any given time. And, uh, you know, uh, that's that's just the way it goes. But, um, yeah, I, I, I do tend to, I guess, uh, discuss... I don't know why it's of interest to me, Louisiana and movie going or movie making. Uh, it just is. I, I don't feel like it's, it's explored nearly as much as it could be. Uh, I just think there's a lot to plunder. Yeah, and you're you're very good on your social media accounts of, like, relinking and sharing around uh, other local artists and critics and things like that, that I would have no idea that these events and this coverage was happening. So I, I definitely appreciate that perspective because I, I don't even know about this stuff until I see you tweet it out. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of took that from Chris Henson who uh, did NOLA film events for the longest time. Uh, the, oh, the that was a very was useful resource. And then it just disappeared all of a sudden. Well, you know, he's doing his own thing now. He's uh, he's got a family, and you know, he has to be, <laughs> be a dad. Now. <laughs> yeah, right. No, he's still he's still cool and everything. Uh, I see him every now and then. But uh, yeah, uh, I guess I'm trying to fill that that space a little bit. But um, I'm very happy to do it. And uh, if you go on Swamp Flicks, you will not see any uh, local coverage, really, except that uh, I did five written posts. Expanding on what I've already said about Overlook over the course of this conversation. But I, I saw nine movies total, and I summed nice. them up in about five different summaries on the website. So check that out. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I,